1: Hey I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now and I'm really excited to have with me today Phoebe Bridgers who released an album called Punisher in June that is in my opinion and in a ton of other people's opinion absolutely one of the best albums of the year and actually that would make it several years in a row since 2017 where Phoebe has released one of the best releases of the year uh, between her own albums, Boy Genius, Supergroup, and her group with Connor Oberst. It's been a very good few years for you and the funny thing is your album is called Punisher because you're playing on a term about people who uh, gush too much at artists at the merch table and I think people have been doing that to you in interviews and I'm the latest, so sorry <laughs> about that. But tell me about that term uh, for people who, who don't know it.
0: Yeah, well, in in the simplest terms, I think a Punisher is just somebody who doesn't know that they're being perceived as exhausting. Like one time I was cornered at a party. I could literally see my friends in the background. But this person I had not seen since I was like a teenager cornered me to talk about if Verizon or AT&T was better. And, like, talking about her own personal experience. Like, I wasn't involved in the conversation at all. I think that's key. Like, I love gushy fans. You know, I, like, look out in the crowd, and it's predominantly, like, queer, young, femme kids. And they'll be like, I made you a friendship bracelet. That is not what I'm talking about. That is awesome. What I'm talking about is, like, Oh, there's also a fan splainer, which is one of my favorites because it'll be like you're playing in Florida and they're, and they say, they come up to you and they're like, I was going to buy tickets for Kalamazoo because I was going to be there. But then I bought (laughs) tickets for here. And I I actually saw you last night on the TV when you played Seth Meyers. And now I'm at this show and the sound wasn't that great. (laughs) But, and it makes me wonder if I should have gone to Kalamazoo. Like, they're just not, they're like kind of insulting you the whole time and they're just taking you through their personal experience with you. Like, you're not, you don't have any new information whatsoever. That's great.
1: The other thing is you write about Elliot Smith and a slight hint that you would be the Punisher if you met Elliot Smith. Um, It's not surprising you can hear the kinship in your music, but what is it about him that you respond to uh, most deeply?
0: Mm, It's tons of stuff. It's like, it got me early for one thing. Like I don't look at Elliot's music with the same, like exacting bitchiness as I do uh, a lot of music nowadays. Like it got me at a time where I had never heard any music like that before. And so it still affects me in that way. Like when I listen to lyrics and stuff, There are some Elliot lyrics where I'm like, no other artist could get away with that. It's like so sincere or so emo. Um, And I think just like the whole character of him is also very appealing to me. And his like the actual music music itself sounds like the Beatles or something. Like it's like an orchestra that he has managed to do like, you know, on a four track. So, yeah, I love everything about it. But also like the character of him is so solidified for everybody and I think that's another very easy way to get punished is if everybody has like a preconceived notion of what you're going to be like and thinks that they know how to like relate to you so so for example for me I'll often get punished with like I'm so depressed and like my depression medication uh isn't kicking in today so like I'm at your show ha 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 and I'm like that's that sucks you know (laughs) it sucks (laughs) that people think that that's like The way I speak.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You have a fascinating relationship, I would say, to your own sadness. You just launched a label called Satisfactory. And I mean, you know, it's a very real thing. And like you said, it sucks to experience as a human being. And yet there's there's a certain knowingness in your, even in your tweets and the way you talk about it and sometimes the way you write about it in this idea of writing about sadness and the way you relate to it. How, how do you kind of see all that?
0: Well, I think it's very funny. I think sadness is very funny. Depression is funny to me because it's the least singular thing on earth. Like, it's the human experience, uh, unless you're an idiot. It's the human experience. And I think most people aren't idiots and experience some form of sadness or depression. But when you are really depressed, you're like, oh, God, why did you forsake me? It's like, it's everybody. So I think taking it a little bit less seriously has always been funny to me. And I, and I like comedians and musicians who do that, which is funny because Elliot kind of did take it really seriously. He seems like a goofball in real life, um, which I appreciate, but yeah, like Connor Oberst, great example. You could say that he's really self-serious in his songs, but I feel like most of his lyrics are actually inside jokes, I've come to learn, where he's just like messing with one of his friends. I like that.
1: Now, it's kind of an extraordinary thing to, while you, uh, while you grew up uh, idolizing Elliot Smith, you did not get to <laughs> form a group with him. And you did with Conor Oberst, who, who meant a ton to you. Uh, I love that Better Oblivion Community Center album. And I was going to ask what you learned from him in the process, but I, I'd rather ask, uh, what do you think he learned from you in the process?
0: <laughs> um, What did he learn from me? Uh, I have a, I probably have a really funny answer to this question, but I'm trying to be sincere. Um,
1: <laughs> you can do both answers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> well, he definitely... I feel like I do more press than him less bitterly and being in a band together instead of leaning towards his side of that i think we lean towards my side and so he was doing a lot more interviews i think than normal (laughs) um and that was really fun and then let's see i can only think of stuff i learned from him like how to jump off a kick drum and then what else uh i don't know oat milk lattes are delicious like on our press trip in in europe i was getting them every day and then uh, at a certain point he was just like yeah, yeah, I'll have one of those. He's like a black coffee guy. Um, he's like, yeah, 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 no, I'll do, I'll do an oatmeal milk latte today.
1: <laughs> when he's credited with helping with writing on like, I think there's like three songs on this album, what does that end up really meaning? It seems like you probably have an almost finished song and you're just like, I need one chord here or what, or how does, that, what does that end up meaning? I think it's like uh, the title track and the amazing final track, I Know the End.
0: Yeah, and Halloween. I feel like Halloween is the one he helped the heaviest with. Because if you've ever had, like, as a journalist, if you've ever had, like, a great editor, it's like that feeling where you're like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. Or he'd, like, replace one word that was phonetically the same as what had been in the line before but just, like, tied the entire song together somehow. I think that's someone something I've always, like, been... It's been really fascinating being let into his writing process, and now I feel like I'm just totally... You know, I can read as many writing books And, you know, interviews with people Who talk about their process as I want But Connor's, like, one of the only people Where I just, like, started writing with him And then adopted the way that he writes entirely Like, just literally He has one page of lyrics Next to the new page of lyrics So, like, as he's making changes He'll write completely different lyrics on the next page And I, I did that for this whole record After making Better Oblivion But But, yeah, you're right So I'd be, like Oh, like I just want this one verse to be miserable. And he's like, "Well, you're you're always talking about that Dodger Stadium murder. Like, why don't you write about that? It's great. It's like an editor." Into the sun. Let the come
1: me up. I did want to ask about "I Know the End," which is the final track on the album. First, it builds into this glorious horn-driven thing that's just gorgeous and then it kind of goes into this uh, beautiful chaos that's like a little bit like uh, Day in the Life by the Beatles or something. like. It's definitely one of the most striking musical moments I've heard all year on, on anyone's album and maybe just explain how you wrote a song like that from start to finish like and where the sections, whether, whether that was always part of it, the build up at the end and just how it all came together because it's, it's just amazing.
0: I think it was a concept first where I was like, I want this record to end in screaming. And then there was this song that I had started <laughs> writing with my ex-boyfriend who plays drums with me. We're like extremely codependent. Like I feel like our relationship is very seminal to my whole adult life. Like I met him, I was super, super impressed when we met. Um, met kind of in horrible circumstances and then became like... Inseparable musically and yeah, I don't feel like stuff is finished until I show him um, But him and I were writing a song at the end of our romantic relationship That was just really sad. I was like this almost doesn't have a place on the record because it's just like miserable And then when I had the eight screaming idea kind of towards the end of the record I was like, it's the outro to this super miserable song It's gonna be the outro. So really it was the first song I started for this record and the last song I finished which is kind of cool.
1: Do you demo stuff like that out? Is there like some kind of scratch arrangement of that that you did on your own?
0: I think there is. I think it's on this spire that isn't working right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, I definitely make demos, but they're pretty sad. Like for the most part, it's voice memos. I have thousands of voice memos because I also like the way they sound. It's weird. I don't know what they're doing, but they sound great. And, but, but they're funny because I'm whispering uh the my neighbors one time someone shouted through my open window, Shut the fuck up. And so ever <laughs> since then I've just like it actually it gets kinda weird because I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll write a song and then it'll be in a completely different key than something I can sing because I whispered the entire time when I was writing it. Um so yeah I have a whispered I know the end.
1: Do you then is it all just singing? It's it's not uh you, you don't sit there with your guitar, you're you're just kinda like Literally whispering melodies into the into the voice memo?
0: I have it's mostly guitar. Like I do the equivalent of whispering with a guitar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quietly finger picking yes. kind of thing. Yes. You physically write your lyrics handwrite them in a in a notebook or were you being metaphorical? Is it a yes. computer screen?
0: Yeah, I, I have a hard time typing on a computer. Maybe it just doesn't make me feel cool, but I also <laughs> someone one of my friends told me I, I write my my cursive is like a Like I'm writing letters home from the war in like the 1800s is like, I just, it's, I write faster in cursive. Also my, um, print when I write, when I have to write print, it looks like an eight year old. So yeah, cursive.
1: Yeah. The best answer I ever got to how do you physically write your lyrics was Robert Smith of the cure who said, who claimed he wrote them on a wall in his house. Oh my God. That's awesome. I have one of those behind uh, me are there are there in fact lyrics on, on there?
0: There are definitely no lyrics that says like pay UCLA bill which would be a <laughs> shitty lyric.
1: It's not inconceivable that that would be one of your lyrics no. I have to say
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nope. it's gonna now it's gonna, now I have to do it
1: The way that you incorporate the mundane into your lyrics and and real things that happen and very specific things, What writers, whether it's songwriters or fiction writers or poets or whoever kind of or what other things inspired you to do that? Because it's one of the most effective things and unique things that you do.
0: Um, I think just people that I love, like writing that I love, you know, Mark Kozilek, May He Rest In Peace. Uh, (laughs) uh, Just like I love specific writing um, so much.
1: Now... Since you've had, you've traveled a bit, but you've had a lot of time at home like everyone else and you haven't gotten a tour, have you been writing new songs this year?
0: Yeah, I have. Uh, There was like a Billie Eilish headline, like a couple months into quarantine that my drummer sent me that was like, (laughs) it was like, Billie Eilish said she wrote one whole song in quarantine and it wasn't being facetious. It was just like, wow, she wrote a song and that's how I feel. I'm like, I probably wrote two whole songs, and it's been three times as much time. I, I was talking shit about myself, about how slow I am with writing, and then one of my friends was like, no, you're just deliberate. And, hmm. and I actually agree with that. I was like, that's one thing that I can say about myself, is that I don't, I definitely don't have any extra songs ever. And I kind of write in order. Like, it has to be, I have to love the last line to move on to the next line.
1: Uh, yeah, I do the same thing and it's a good way to torture yourself, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, and are you thinking that you have the first two songs of your next album or have you just written two songs that you don't know what they are?
0: Kind of that. Because again, I have a lot of people who, before I show them the song and ask them what it is, I feel like it's not done. So yeah, so just because it's me, they feel like little, yeah, they're just like weird voice memos in my phone. Also, I have no concept, or that's not true, not no concept, but sometimes it'll really surprise me what people, what other people gravitate towards. Like, I will have not even just being self-deprecating, but I will have actually convinced myself that I wrote something trash. And like I sent it to Marshall, my drummer on tour, and then he texted me like three weeks later being like, well, what was that incredible idea that you had? I'm like, really? You like that? Um, I love that feeling. Like you didn't even remember that you did work.
1: <laughs> Out of all songwriters, all bands, whose whose work do you know the best as a musician? Whose songs, and it could be multiple answers, but whose songs have you can you like? What's the most number of songs that you can like sort of sing and play by other artists? Who 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 did you really absorb that way?
0: Hmm, it probably used to be the Beatles, and then. And then definitely Elliot Smith, and then Connor, for sure. Especially now being in a band, and he'll, you know, like, right before we go on stage, he'll be like, can we play this old song? And I realize, I'm like, yeah, totally.
1: I mean, he he must have been pretty flattered on some level. Oh,
0: he's stoked. Don't let him tell you that he's not stoked, that I have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bright Eyes catalog.
1: <laughs> Do you actually know it better than him?
0: Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, but I like... I like the weird lyrics that he comes up with. It's always close, Uh, like he'll change a lot of lyrics live, and I'm like, that's a crazy way to change that. And they'll be like way darker.
1: The song Chinese Satellite, you've said that on some level, it's it's about a lot of things, it's about uh, the spirituality or lack thereof that you've formed in the face of like a lack of growing up with any. You've also said it's about your actual, your real disappointment of not getting a Hogwarts letter when you were 11 but I, I actually, I think that that's a f- kind of universal feeling. Um, there's that book and that became a TV show, The Magicians, that actually kind of digs into the adult version of the feeling of of like, where's the anointment? When do I transcend the everyday? Where's the magic I was promised? I would totally. just wonder if you could talk a little bit about those feelings.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I had a crush on somebody who Uh, Made me read the magicians on a plane I was like this is like porny Harry Potter This is sick Um, (laughs) But uh, Yeah I love those crushes Where you like You just want to talk to them about the things that they like Those are great But yeah I think Sometimes I catch myself being like Why didn't I get to believe in God ever You know why didn't I Even Santa I was like this is my mom Like she never tried that hard to like she went, like, above and beyond for Christmas. But she was always kind of like, wink, wink, it's Santa Claus is coming. And I was always kind of in on it. Like, I think the first time I was ever, like, heartbroken was when I didn't realize how much I was actually letting myself believe that I was going to get into Hogwarts. Secretly, in the back of my head. I was like, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. But that was just protection. And I think that was that's what the whole song is about, is, like do I just not have faith in anything? Cause I'm protecting myself and no, nothing is real. God is dead. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but I still have, you know, all sorts of weird prayer candles and tarot cards. And like, I, I just want it so bad. Someone asked me if I believe in ghosts and I'm like, I want it too bad to believe in ghosts. I want ghosts too badly for them to be real. Like they would never <laughs> appear to me because I'm the weirdo who'd be like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, in a way, becoming an artist is trying to manifest that magic, isn't it?
0: Totally. And also in the corniest possible way that you can mean something, it is magic. I think it's my subconscious talking to my self. Like when I listen to a record from three years ago, I'm like, oh, that's, I had all the information that I needed about this situation and I had no idea it was being like moved through my brain. I think that's what tarot cards are too. You know, when you see a tarot card of a skeleton, you're like, clearly it's my ex speaking to me and I and it's bad for me. It's like, it's just your own brain filling in what you already know and you haven't been able to admit yourself without help.
1: Brother is named Jackson, which I believe was actor uh, Jackson Brown. And there was a lot of that kind of music in your house growing up. What of that sort of Laurel Canyon era, what, if anything, did you really respond to?
0: I think I just... Responded to well, definitely production and stuff. I gravitated towards the emoist of the Laurel Canyon production, which definitely was Jackson Brown for a while, minus the eighties. But I, but I loved that too. It was like oh, these are emo songs, but with like you know, crazy eighties drums. But yeah, I think I just I, I like what even was popular at that time. Definitely a lot of like Radio Disney. Was on in the car, and then the records that were being played in my house were, you know, like real, genuine lyrics about sadness and getting fucked over.
1: And I know you, you know, you, you took guitar lessons that, w- and that was kind of your rebellion from piano lessons. And how did songwriting really start for you?
0: Uh, I, I just, I really wanted to be a songwriter before I wrote songs that were good. I like romanticized it. I think my first song was was the chorus was I'm the only bird flying the other way. And I'm a white girl from Pasadena uh, in private school. So I don't think I was the only bird flying the other way. But yeah, I like romanticized it. And then and then just at some point it got good. Um, I think a lot of people have these experiences where when I was a teenager writing songs, I would write a new song and then the first song I'd written, the earliest song I'd written dropped off. I was like, that's bad. So I was getting better really fast. Or I was like, oh, this song makes that song look horrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you thought about what it means to be a sort of guitar-based singer-songwriter in this era? And whether would you rather be that now or in an era when that was the dead center mainstream of of, of music.
0: I think about that, I was thinking about this yesterday for some reason, I think I was talking to Connor, but there's just some sort of longevity with making guitar based music, like, especially if you don't stick to a specific genre, and you always write good songs. You have a chance to be like a John Prine character, where his last record was one of his best selling records. I think there will always be a place for it. And, you know, like Jackson Brown, a lot of his music sounds dated, like you can say the exact year that something came out because of a drum sound, but because he's a great songwriter, it just, he transcends.
1: And I know you recorded a, a pretty obscure Tom Petty song, Is uh, it'll all work out. Is he part of your pantheon?
0: Definitely. I think Tom Petty is goals because he, he's just such a great pop melody writer. And I think that a lot of people don't want to admit that that's what they're going for or that that's what they do. Like, Elliot, pop melody writer. And I think it's, like, undervalued when people talk about that stuff. Um, And songwriting, it's, like, cheap or something. But I'm like, what is better than making something that's good and new? Um, So, yeah, definitely... Awesome.
1: And what did Radiohead mean to you?
0: (laughs) I'm obsessed with Radiohead. I probably faked liking Radiohead. I didn't actually know that I did. I had a a crush on a kid named Hunter in my class who loved Radiohead and um, faked it until I made it and just spent a whole summer. like That's what's fun about being my age is that when, or I guess any age with varying bands, but when you discover a band that the predominant bulk of their catalog is behind you, when you discover it, you just have this gift. You're like, Oh, I just get to download all of this into my brain and I don't have to wait for a new record. I don't have to like, it would have been fun to see them and it would have been fun to be a part of that while it was happening. But it is such a treat to discuss. like teenage fan club was like that for me where I just go back and, just get to be their newest super fan.
1: That's a band that you'd read about in spin a long time ago and occasionally would be on college radio. I haven't heard someone say that name in in like a decade. How, how did you get into Teenage Fan Club?
0: I was into Teenage Fan Club when, like maybe my last year of high school. Uh, my friend Brian DeLeon, who I'm, who's awesome, liked all kind of the coolest music and was, again, was like, this is a pop band in an indie you know shell and became obsessed with it thought it was awesome and then there was a one of my favorite records of theirs wasn't on streaming and it actually just got put on streaming and then like two years ago we were tour bidding each other so i saw them several times and it was just one of the most fun bands to watch and also they're like so sweet between songs which i think is so badass like instead of being shoegaze they're like you know, super Scottish. Like, thank you so much guys. This is so nice. Everybody's being so nice right now. I love that.
1: <laughs> tell me about, um, tell me about ICU. That's a, that's a great song on the album.
0: ICU is about Marshall, who I mentioned earlier, who started the, I know the end song with me. Very, complex and very simple relationship to me. <laughs> but right when we first broke up, I started writing that song just about how, you know, right when you break up with someone, it's hard to hang out every day, even if you're really close. And now we do, uh, but it was hard for like the first year. And yeah, just like missing kind of s- some somebody that you were leaning on for so long. Like I, I leaned on him for everything. I, d- I don't think I like drove a car for like our- the entire two year relationship. Um, and so, and you know, he's like an engineer and he'd go on tour with me and just, we did everything together. So then missing that was, I was like, did I make the biggest mistake ever? And then, uh, and his mom, uh, voted for Donald Trump and we got in a huge fight. Um, so that's, I blame that lyric on that. Uh, yeah, just about that regret feeling.
1: Graceland 2 is an incredible song. It's interesting to write a song. <laughs> the, the very title uh, has has an amazing self-awareness to it. Maybe just talk about how you wrote that song.
0: Yeah, it's just about caring about someone who does not care about themselves at all and how painful that is because you can't. Like, I often wish it was like Dune where you could, you know, communicate telepathically and someone could read your mind, but you can't, and you can't make somebody feel love for themselves and you can't stop somebody from hurting themselves really unless you're like with them 24-7 which is horrible you know like if you're standing between somebody and like relapsing or self-harm or something it's like you can't you can't do that forever they have to kind of stand on their own two feet and I, I feel like I've been in that situation so many times so it's, a, it's like a love song about that and then graceland 2 talk about punishers graceland 2 the place is a elvis super fan who turned his house into like graceland 2 which is uh although it's spelled t-o-o which is amazing that sounds like graceland also um and it's magical although it's since torn down but it's yeah, so weird.
1: So it gets to be a, a double reference, just like the "Rebel Without a Cool" line, which is a, a, which is like Tom Petty, and I, which he stole from the Replacements. Exactly. So it's like perfect. It, yeah.
0: Which is funny because <laughs> my producer Tony Berg, who worked with the Replacements, literally begged me not to put that in that song. Um, <laughs> Why? Because he was like, "It sucks! It sucks that Tom Petty <laughs> stole it. Like, it's it's like putting salt in a wound." And I'm like, "Yeah, but if but if people think I'm stealing it from Tom Petty, then." that's amazing because he deserves it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is it weird to not be touring these songs? And to, I mean, you, you've gotten to do some really cool late night appearances and stuff, but it, does it feel like there's this like empty spot where you should be playing these songs every night?
0: Absolutely. I, I feel like my ego, like true ego death is not being on tour, putting out an album and not being on tour. Um, I didn't realize how much I relied on people screaming, At me every night But I do It's just super weird Like I feel I feel like I don't exist Um, Which is Best problems Possible to have In 2020 And I'm also Super grateful That I did anything That I released this album That I'm talking to you That I get to like Talk about something That I did Because I feel like I truly wouldn't exist (laughs) Uh, Late stage capitalism At it's best I I feel like I don't exist Unless I make stuff And get to talk about it
1: Mm. I mean, it is wild how prescient some of the album now seems. Uh, you know, it's 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 something that it feels like reflexive. I feel like it, it's a bad reflex. I keep when I talk to people about their albums, even if it's like a disco album, I find a reason to to say it's appropriate for right now. But this, I swear, this one really, a lot of it emotionally and even sometimes very specifically lyrically, feels like right now. And some of it hits different, you know, in in the wake of the pandemic. And I, I'm just curious how much some of your your general feelings about the world have been sort of amplified by what happened uh, since March.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Connor put out a record, too, and gets the exact same questions because and he's like, I've been writing about the apocalypse since like the 90s. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel the same way. It's like all my apathetic lyrics are more poignant now, but... Even just weird ones that had nothing to do with anything, like wearing a mask in Halloween or being stuck inside, and I know. Yeah, it's just, it's cool. I like that about art, and I've been listening to music in a different way. But yeah, I, like, right when, when it all started, I think I wrote Quarantine into a song. And then, in retrospect, I'm like, I know, dude no stop like you're gonna have to stop being hyper specific because everybody's having the exact same experience did you
1: rhyme did you try to rhyme it with something
0: did i no thank god okay (laughs) although i think there's like a fuck who was it someone someone released a really horrible quarantine song maybe i'm glad that i can't remember who it is so i'm not packing shit but uh
1: I know you've been listening to the uh, Fiona Apple record. What else have you, whether it's old or new, have you been drawn to since March or so in in your own listening?
0: Let me see. I can actually pull up my Spotify. Um, Well been listening to a lot of Cure, which is weird. Let's see this. um, Yeah, I... Let's see, I was listening to Big Star last night. I I realized the similarities between uh, GLAD Girls by Guided by Voices and September Girls by Big Star. Uh Uh-huh. And I used to like both songs. And then after realizing that, I was like, fuck you, Guided by Voices. Um, (laughs) uh, What else is on here? Haunt by Daniel Johnston, the Mm. terrifying... There's a terrifying song called Haunt. What's Kid Cuddy's rock album?
1: Oh, yeah. I was listening
0: to that last night. <laughs> um, listening to that. Yeah, I'm getting weird. I feel like I forgot about music for so long, and I was just listening to podcasts for all of tour. Right. And then since this quarantine, I just like started liking music again. Maybe it's, Yeah, because I wasn't on tour. But yeah, it's uh, The Future by Leonard Cohen, another very poignant song now. Mm. What is it about chopping down the last tree and then stuffing it up the hole in your culture? That's cool. He also says anal sex in that song, which is hard. (laughs) It's hard to rhyme with that.
1: And I did want to ask about Kyoto, which is I love that. It started as a ballad and then you just felt you had too many ballads and you just manifested it into a, a super catchy uh, sort of power pop song. So you can just do that on command if you want, if you want to write up tempo that just.
0: I think I have people on payroll who can do that for me. Like Tony Berg, <laughs> my producer, was like, this has got to be, he, he actually, you know, it's a gimmick now. I feel like there are some where we just can't. Like, we try, and it sounds horrible. Um, but because he knows I write only ballads at this point, he knows that the only reason to – or the only way to trick me into writing a pop song is to is to turn my ballads into pop songs.
1: So is it as simple as speeding it up, or <laughs> it can't be, right?
0: Not really, because I was the, – the original version of that is kind of circular. Like, it's almost swung. And so it's trying to speed it up, I felt like I had, like – that was super dizzy. But yeah, those Ethan Gruska and Tony Berg are like musical geniuses, which I keep around me because I am not one. I write the song or, or all songs with like three chords and the same time signature. So, um, so yeah, they help. Actually, the voice memo at the beginning of that song, the sample is us playing it sped up for the first time.
1: The Garden song, the instrumentation, how, how did you create that, that sort of fractured, uh, sound?
0: Like an iPad, literally. Um, Ethan has a bunch of weird iPad apps that uh, he just puts everything through. It's really cool. We use it a lot. On, we used a lot on the first record too, but but even more on this record.
1: Huh. So it's just like it's like using an iPad app as like a pedal, basically, or something. Like is that, is right.
0: Well, it's a it's a rubber bridge, baritone, acoustic guitar. So already a weird guitar, and then sampled, chopped up, put into
1: iPad. That if I hear Radiohead directly in in your music, that would be <laughs> that would be a place where where I heard it. Totally. It's weird. I mean, I remember you saying that. I know I'm never going to have a, a pop song on the radio, a, a pop hit on the radio. I mean, isn't it bad to be so sure? I mean, I, do you really? I don't think you really know that. Even "Got It" by Voices once almost had a hit.
0: Really? Yeah. I didn't know
1: s- that. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, like
0: not on like pop. That's what, yeah. yeah. That's what would happen to me is, like, an accidental hit or, like, a Foster the People hit, um, if that did happen to me. But, <laughs> but I remember Aaron Desner from The National once was like, you just got to, like, not have any. Like, The National definitely never did. And because of that, their shows are full of people who know every song instead of, like, drunk people screaming one song.
1: <laughs> well, see, that seems more to the point. It's almost like you don't want to because then... It becomes that thing, uh, and and that that actually is uh, you know the only band who ever escaped. There's a ba- that band, not a surf, who did it in reverse. They had this song popular, which was this huge novelty hit, and then became a credible great indie band. And it, it
0: what's well, so weird? It sounds nothing like them. Right. Popular. Um, I love that band. Yeah. I feel like that's that's how you write pop songs to me. Is like those very low key. Almost no production, not a surf songs.
1: So it must be hard on that same note to sort of feel the momentum, like you said, and feel that you exist without like, or feel even like, how successful am I at this moment in this sort of isolated place you're in, right? That must be strange. And maybe it's good. I don't know.
0: I think it is kind of good. It's nice. I'm like protected from everything. I used to feel so famous around my shows because you're, I always say you're never as famous as you are, like the five blocks around the menu right the day you play you know like if you ever want to feel famous play a show and then go to the restaurant next door um so I just don't have like a distorted view anymore and also getting recognized now is kind of fun like people like you know in there you're like oh it really is just my hair
1: <laughs> wait did you just say recognized yes I said yes.
0: recognized <laughs>
1: Yeah, I have not heard that one before. Did you? I uh, is that is that your own invention or is that some, is that a friend's?
0: No, I think I got it from the pop punk world. Actually, I think Chad Gilbert. <laughs> we went to Disneyland once, and he was like, "Ah, oh, this is like recognized city because pop punk kids love Disneyland."
1: <laughs> recognized Punisher. Can you can you give me one more?
0: Uh well, there's fansplainer, like I said, which I love. Right. What else? Uh, yeah, everything else is like an inside joke that doesn't make any uh, sense to other people. Um, this has nothing to do with anything. But my Dutch tour manager, who's like six seven, right before you go on stage every night, he goes, "Let's do it to them before they do it to us." <laughs> That's Which, we don't know what that means, <laughs> but it's I. It's my intrusive thought now.
1: <laughs> he should text that to you every night at eight pm while you're at home. Uh, yeah, to- I wouldn't
0: put it past him. He used to be in a. In a metal band called Das Oath, and they had dildos as their merch. Of course. So he's he's sick.
1: I wanted to ask about, before we wrap up, will there be more better Oblivion Community Center projects? Will there be more Boy Genius projects?
0: I hope so. The ethos of both of those bands are it is really fun. And uh, I think the weird part, especially owning a label now, is like, you know, this contract, it's it's at this time. So this person has to be working on a solo record or whatever. Like, it's just a lot of mental math. But I hope that our kind of stars align at some point because, yeah, I love both those bands so much and I feel like it makes my solo music better.
1: What are your ambitions for the label?
0: I want to stick to signing people who write good songs. I think it's easy for me to hear cool production and not like dig deeper, but I want to like truly be able to connect with people on lyrics, which is hard. And also like a lot of, that means a lot of different things. It doesn't have to, I definitely just don't want to sign people who sound exactly like me or who sound exactly like Connor or whatever. Like I'd love to kind of reach throughout genres. Basically sign stuff I feel really stoked on not, not because I should, or because it's cool.
1: Are super happy artists allowed?
0: Totally. Totally. I feel like, again, <laughs> happiness is funny too. As funny as sadness.
1: <laughs> and I just am curious because I, I feel like I can't predict your reaction to various musicians. Do you have any musical relationship or thoughts on Van Halen?
0: I mean, Pasadena. Represent. Right. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> I think it's Van Halen is super, super seminal. I also was kind of like a Hessian tween. Uh So definitely learned a lot of Van Halen on guitar. Um, But yeah, I mean, also they were the ones who invented the uh, rider trick of uh, the M&Ms, right?
1: Absolutely. Love
0: that. And do you know the story behind that?
1: Uh, We actually, on this very show, we had the manager for Van Halen who wrote a book who invented that trick. And he very adamantly explained that about how it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't... Safety, right? What's that?
0: It was for Safety.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Because if they can't get that right, they know that everything else might be dangerously wrong.
0: Then like a huge beam over your head might fall while you're playing guitar. Yeah. It's a great trick. (laughs) There's nothing better than when you forget to change your writer from the United States to Europe and you have guacamole on your writer in the States and then you get to Germany and it's in a can and it's called avocado sauce. (laughs) Yeah, that's a treat. (laughs) <laughs> that's,
1: you have to follow Van Halen's example and avoid those kind of things I, I was scared someone was going to tweet uh, now there's no brown M&M's in heaven and one person did so <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't either of us so we can feel good about that good 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 um, well PB Bridgers thank you so much for joining us that was uh, that was a lot of fun thanks man
0: yeah this
1: is fun and that's our show for today we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106 In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or again, wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.